In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. When it comes to big government, there is no single bigger issue than money. Take their money, you take their power. But if you can't take their money, I mean, after all, that's their entire business, taking money from you to give it to their allies and donors, if you can't take their money, at least control how they spend it. Thanks to COVID, California got $100 billion in extra cash. This was in the first trillion dollar spending bill no one read and immediately blew through it, all of it. Now they are projecting at least a $22 billion budget shortfall and experts are warning it's probably going to be a $30 billion budget shortfall. Is anything better in California after that $100 billion spending spree? Spending is the focus of today's show. Now, if you've been following us the last few weeks, we've had a mini-series on parents' rights and education, which are constantly under attack now by the government, using your money to attack you with. The culmination of that series is today, getting real school choice here in Oregon. If you missed those previous shows, head to iSpyRadio.com and you can download those from there or find us on your favorite podcast platform. And in the second half of the show, we're going to talk with Senator Dennis Lithcomb about what's happening in the legislature. And believe me, it's too good to miss. So stick around for that. To talk about getting real school choice on the ballot in case our legislators fail us, I'd like to welcome back Donna Kreitzberg. She is a former CPA, business and tax attorney and real estate broker, but now retired. She is focusing her energy on helping lead the effort to improve schools by putting real school choice on the 2024 ballot in Oregon. Donna, it's great to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mark. So it has to be very encouraging to you um, to see other states sign these school uh, choice initiatives and put them into law, I imagine. Yes, it is. It's wonderful to watch the legislatures in different states come across proposing and signing and then having the governors proposing and signing and and getting these acts together. Uh, It's encouraging to see the momentum from the legislatures and the people telling their legislators, yes, vote on these. Well, I also imagine it's got to be pretty encouraging, too, because we're looking at getting this on the ballot here in 2024. So it's a, a good year and change away. And now as more school choice initiatives and in other states kick in and show genuine improvements, that's going to only add more weight to the argument as to why we need it here instead of throwing more money at bad results. Well, yes. And there have been 30 years of studies up through uh, 2021, I believe, that show conclusively that there are positive effects from the, to the students who remain in public schools and to the students who exercise a school choice program. Their test scores go up, their satisfaction goes up, their, what they learn increases, and it also helps the teachers in their pay and their satisfaction. Hmm. So we have this huge body of results from the prior states across the country and 30 years accumulated showing how valuable school choice is. And we always have to remember that the point of all the money that we pay in taxes for education is to make sure our children sure. get the best education possible. Sure, absolutely. So when we focus on making sure that money is spent that way, um, the results just show for themselves that school choice does improve the results for both the kids who use it and the kids who remain in public school. 
Well, that makes so much sense to me because as a free market um, promoter, I guess you, you would say somebody that really believes in that, that competition is always going to raise all boats because at the people that stay in those schools, suddenly they're expected to produce real results. And, you know, if, if, if you're just throwing money after money after bad results and nobody cares if you improve, that's got to be discouraging, I would think, for those teachers as well. So before we dig into things a little deeper, I understand you have some news about the two ballot initiatives. Is that correct? Yes, we do. We're very excited to report that we have finally completed all of the state process. Back in October, the Secretary of State acknowledged that our two measures, open enrollment and school choice, were met the constitutional threshold. And then the Attorney General reviewed our measures and gave us certified ballot titles. That was at the beginning of October. And then right after that, the government union sued the Attorney General, and those cases went up to the Supreme Court, basically arguing about the ballot titles. But now the Supreme Court has thrown those cases out approved our measures. The Secretary of State has approved our 10-line petition form, so we are given the all-clear from all the states. We are now out and about collecting signatures for this phase two. It's a little confusing because we had to do phase one this past summer where we had to get the preliminary signatures, and so we did that over the summer, and then we had to go through the state process, and now we're out of that, and now we're collecting the big amount of signatures. We have, we're seeking about 250,000 signatures for each amendment to get on the November of 24 ballot. So this is phase two. This is the big show. Um, this is where we go out and we'll talk to Oregonians all across Oregon and explain what the measures do and how they benefit and protect parents and, and teachers. And then we'll be getting those signatures to get it on the ballot. And then the parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and business owners and everybody can vote in favor of these two measures to help our children, which then helps our state. Right. So what are the two captions, the, you know, the headline summary that people will see, and what do the two initiatives do? Okay. Um, the captions, that's the 15 words, which is what most people think about. The 15 words for open enrollment, and that basically allows parents access to any public school and charter school. The caption for that says, parent may select any public school statewide, district must admit, space permitting, limited admission priorities. So what we're doing here is we're saying, basically, a parent can decide, I'm assigned to this particular school, but I think my be- my child is better suited at a different public school. So no longer are they trapped in that assigned school. Now they can just reach out to that school that they want to go to. And if that school has space, let's say little Johnny's in the seventh grade and the school they want to go to has five extra seats in the seventh grade, then that chosen school will admit little Johnny. And so now the parent doesn't have to move physically, you know, sell their house, buy a new house in the new district. Instead, they can just drive little Johnny over to the chosen school and have him go to school there. It also removes the arbitrary 3% cap on virtual charter schools. So no longer will there be a a barrier that says that little Johnny can't go to a, a virtual charter school if that's the best environment for him. So we're basically empowering parents to choose any public school, charter, traditional, brick-and-mortar school, whatever the parents and family and little Johnny decide is the best environment, that's the school that will take Johnny, assuming that there's room. What we're also doing here is we're not telling the school, hey, you have to admit little Johnny and displace someone who's already going there. We build into the measure that all the kids who are already going to that chosen school will remain able to go to that school. It's just if they have space, 
the new children can go there. Right. And that will help give stability to the school that, that these children want to go to, and it'll help the teachers have some more job security because they know that they're, um, they don't have these empty spaces that now these students can come in and fill those. Right. So it's good for the students and it's good for the teachers. Okay, um, we're so up against the one for, we'll have to get the other one after oh, okay. this break. Everyone stay with us. We're going to be talking some more to Donna Kreitzberg about getting real school choice on the ballot. And welcome back. This is the iSpy Radio Show. We're talking today to Donna Kreitzberg. She's one of the leaders here in Oregon to get real school choice on the Oregon 2024 ballot. There's still a long way to go, though, not least of which is the built-in opposition to it, which we're going to come around to in a little bit here. Uh, Donna, you were talking about the ballot initiatives there, and you described the first one really well. Could you, could you give us a little bit more on the other one? Sure. The other one is called the School Choice Amendment, and that will remove the barrier to education that's based on how much money a family has. So with the school choice amendment, a parent can choose to have their child educated in a private school or a homeschool setting, and they'll have access to the Oregon taxpayer money to use to fund that education. The money will go from the state to an account at a nonprofit organization that the parent chooses. The parent never actually touches the money, which gives a, a level of protection there in case the parent was going to spend it on a fancy dinner or a cruise. That's mm-hmm. impossible. And in addition, when the money goes from the state to the account, it stops being public funds. And that cuts the legal tie so that we don't have the concern of, oh, I'm taking government money, therefore the state's going to regulate me. Right, no, that right. isn't a concern. The state cannot regulate the money because the money becomes effectively the money for the child. It's held in an account. The parent will then direct that money to be spent to customize the education that the child needs. We believe that parents know what their children need, and the parents can then decide that the best setting for my child is a private school or a home school, and they'll direct the nonprofit agency to spend those monies on private school tuition or national testing or uniforms or transportation or curriculum or tutors or education therapists, all those kind of education items that would already be in a public school budget, but they can be then used by the parent to customize the education for the child away from public school. So it gives the ability of the child to find the learning environment that works for the child. It gives the parent the finances then to use to pay for that education. Because our Oregon Constitution says that the taxpayer money that we all put in the hat to be used for education is to be funded on the student. So we want to make sure that that money actually does get spent on educating our kids. So this will allow parents to choose to stay in the public school system if they'd like, or they can move over to the private school, homeschool situation and have the money to do that and pay for. So we don't have a two-class system where everybody pays taxes right. and then poor parents that want to use public, private school or homeschool have to write another check. Right. That's not fair. That's not equitable. And, and so we're uh, making sure the money follows the students. Uh, yes, and I think that's really the key here. And I think that's why this is such a, a, a great pair of amendments here is because it really does open the doors to poor people. Rich people have always had a choice to where to send their kids. This opens the door to everybody. And so if you're in a school that is failing your kid because your kid has you know unique educational needs or the school itself is, is just not doing its job, you can uh, take your kid out, uh, out of there and uh, you don't have to be rich to do that. So I, I think that's really what is so cool about this. Um, so now that you're into the second phase and you're that much close to getting this on the ballot, what's some of the opposition you're already hearing to these initiatives? Well, there's some concerns out there about the money issue. 
And the important thing to remember here is that the recent study from Cascade Policy Institute that came out, I believe, last month says that when you have school choice in Oregon, it will actually increase the amount of money that's spent on the students that remain in the public school. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it because it costs approximately 15000 to educate a student right now in the public school system. And so when we have school choice, if a parent decides that the learning environment is better suited for the child is, let's say, a private school, the parent can have the child leave the public school, go over to the private school, that the student would take with them approximately $7,600, use that money for private school, the remaining money would stay at the public school. So there's fewer students left at the public school, but there's more money to be spent on them. Hmm. And the studies show that the fiscal impact is always positive or primarily positive in the sense that there's more money available to be spending on the students who remain. And most of the students who would leave the school would then have $7,600 and the K through 12 private, excuse me, the K through 8 private school tuition is about 6000 So they'll have $7,600 to spend on what could cost 6000 So they'll have a little bit left over and that excess will roll over every year. So when the private school student gets to a private high school, which is tends to be a little more expensive, they'll have some excess to use. And then when the, cho- when the child completes high school, whatever has rolled over and is still available in the pot, the child can use for Oregon college, university, trade school, or vocational school. So we're basically using the Oregon taxpayer money to its fullest effect to educate the kids in the best environment that they decide on, and then the money that leaves and follows the child into the private sector can then come back into Oregon again in the college's trade sure, schools. Sure. So these children will have this phenomenal opportunity to tap their full potential. Well, I, I really we're, love... Removing all these barriers. Sure. I, I really love how well thought out this is because I know that is one of the uh, lines that we hear from a lot of these other states uh, as they're trying to resist having school choice in, in their states is, oh my gosh, you're taking all the money away from public schools. But hearing you talk about this, I mean, they're going to actually have more funding per student um, with with the kids that remain. So right there, you've deflated their entire argument. I love that. So um, I am a little though. Well, it's also important. It's also important to remember too, if you if you think about the money that we all pay in taxes as going into a hat, Mm -hmm. it's the same amount of money after this measure passes to allow parents to choose the learning environment. It's the same amount of money. It's just following the children. So it's not like the money is disappearing, it, it, the money follows the children. It's the same pool of money that's being spent and being taxed by us, and then the money just follows to the students. So a child could leave public school if they decide that that's the best environment, so the money then follows the child. So right. it's not like we're sending the money out into outer space. It's the same money over the same, basically the same children, and the point here is always to spend this money that we collect from taxpayers on making sure our children get the best education. Yes, yes. Right now there's kids in a school environment that is not allowing them to reach their full potential. Right. So we're breaking through those barriers. Right. We're letting the children find the environment that works, making sure the money is available for them. So it's a win for the children, it's a win for the parents, and it's a win for the teachers. Absolutely. So it's, it's hard to imagine who doesn't love their kids and who doesn't want the best for them. Right. N- nobody should have to have a child that is stuck in a school that is underperforming and not meeting the needs of that child. But if you are stuck, you should be able to get out of it. And that's what this does. So, okay, uh, we do need to take a break. Come back. We'll be talking more with Donna Kreitzberg. She's leading the charge to get uh, real school choice on the ballot. Coming up, we're going to be talking about how do we convince Oregonians to vote for this.
It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show. And welcome back. We're talking with Donna Kreitzberg about getting real school choice on the ballot here in Oregon. And uh, some exciting news with that is uh, they are now into phase two. They're into uh, they're out there gathering signatures, but there's still a lot of opposition to this, as you can imagine. And uh, Donna, I'm actually surprised to see some of what I would normally think to be your allies are maybe not opposed per se, but they are certainly expressing some concerns. Ocean Network says this on uh, from an article. This was back in July of 2022. Amendment advocates imply that these will uh, protect homeschoolers from getting additional state regulations when, in fact, it invites more regulation. And in particular, they zero in on this language, quote, neither the parent nor the education providers who receive or use school choice funds will be required by the state to change their creed, education practices, teaching credentials or qualifications, admission policies or curricula. And they go on to say, quote, these five categories seem more focused on the needs of private schools than homeschoolers. They do not cover the in-your-face threats that homeschoolers have actually faced in Oregon, such as mandatory home well-being visits by state nurses or intrusive state surveys of homeschooled students. So can you respond to these uh, concerns of theirs? Sure. The way that we carefully drafted the school choice amendment is to separate the categories of homeschoolers. So a homeschooler can vote in favor of the measure and then not choose to participate, and they will not be affected. They will allow their fellow homeschoolers to have the protections of the amendment, but they themselves can remain where they are right now, which is every year they're subject to the possibility of legislation on those things that you mentioned. For the homeschoolers who choose to participate, they will be put in a separate constitutional category, separate and distinct, because they're operating within the benefits and and protections of the amendment. So they'll be separated from the other homeschoolers, and as a constitutional protected homeschooler, they will not have the government regulating, re- regulating them because they're using the money, because the money, once it's put into the account for the child, stops being government funds. And then these categories will stop the state from coming in and telling them how they have to choose a curriculum or how they have to educate the child or what criteria the parent has to satisfy to be the homeschool parent. So the fact that it's in the Constitution means that we are bypassing the legislature and the governor to give these protections to the homeschool families that want to participate and want these protections. Then they'll also be in a separate category. So if someone wants to vote in favor of it but not use it, that's fine. They can vote in favor and help all the other parents. But they themselves, if they don't want to actually participate, they can remain outside And then the participating families will have all these new protections that are not available to the homeschool families right now. These protections stop the state from turning homeschoolers into basically public schools. These protections also stop a private school that wants to participate in this from being turned into a public school. They build a big brick wall between what the state can regulate, which is the public schools, and what the state cannot regulate, which is the private schools and homeschool families that participate in this measure, because we're very mindful of wanting to help families, not hurt them, and to give them these protections and benefits Mm -hmm. and allow everybody to vote in favor, and they can choose to participate or not. But the ones who do choose to participate are given this level of protection that's not available, so they don't have to worry every year, oh my gosh, you know, what's the legislature going to do? Because once this amendment passes, any conflicting legislation will be nullified, and any future legislation that, that attempts to conflict with this amendment will be 
preempted. Right. And so then, once this amendment passes, it, it cements these protections in for private schools and homeschools that participate. Right. And, and that's one of the things that sure, that's one of the things I really like about this amendment is that the the money follows the children. The regulations don't, because otherwise you're just you know, as you said, you're turning private schools into public schools. So I, I just love that. It, and you don't it's, want to do that. No, absolutely not. So um, it would be nonsensical if that's what happened. So as far as convincing Oregonians, uh, many of uh, whom are dyed in the wool, teacher union supporting Democrats, how do you convince them to vote for real school choice? Because I, I assume uh, you're actually working with allies from across the country on how they were successful in their states. And what were some of the arguments they used to convince the hesitant? Well, I think the, the, the big argument that they tend to make concerns money. Mm-hmm. And when we when we strip that down and look at what really that argument is, again, the money is meant to educate the children. The state has an obligation to educate our kids in primary and secondary schools. There's no such thing as public schools mentioned in the Oregon Constitution because the point of spending this money, the taxpayers put money into the hat to make sure that our children get a good education. So that's what this measure is doing. It's not saying that a parent has to choose a certain thing. We're giving the, the parent the opportunity, the smorgasbord of all these different options to choose the environment that works best for their child because we feel that right now there are arbitrary barriers. There could be children in a current environment where they aren't able to reach their full potential and they could be trapped in that environment because of where they live or their family income. So these amendments will break through those barriers, let the families choose the environment, let the money follow the student to that environment and have direct accountability on the spending of this money. So the parent is making a decision because the parent is ultimately the one that's in charge, knows the child best. The parent has the right and the duty, according to the United States um, Supreme Court, to govern what the education needs to be. And so we're reinstating that power in the parent saying, hey, parent, you can choose which environment works for you, public school, charter school, private school, homeschool. Once you decide which that environment is, you will then have the right to choose that environment and have the money available to you to make sure your child gets the best education in that environment. We love our children. We want our children to have their full potential. So it seems unimaginable that anybody could say, well, I don't want my child to have the money available to get the best education, or I don't want, you know, somehow Oregon's money spent to educate these these children in the environment that works for them. So I think the arguments might come from a, 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 a misunderstanding or not understanding how the benefits right, of school right. choice really work. Right, and I, I think that is so persuasive in itself is the best education for my child. I, I think that's great. Uh, unfortunately, we're up against the clock. Donna, well, thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thank you for having me. I'd love to come back and, and give you a report this summer. Oh, absolutely. That sounds great. Get a little more intelligence on big government. You're listening to the iSpy Radio Show. And welcome back. Before we get going with our second guest, if you want to help get real school choice on the 2024 ballot, a simple thing that you can do is to help gather petition signatures. Just head to educationfreedomfororegon.com. That's F-O-R, not the number. Educationfreedomfororegon.com. And you can download and print out signature sheets, uh, either a single line for yourself or a 10-line sheet if you have friends or family who can also sign it. Uh, the links are right there at the top of the page. And if you didn't catch that, you can always just head to iSpyRadio.com and look for the links on today's show page, which is 13-08. And also on that educationfreedomfororegon.com website, you can find links to volunteer and you can also donate as well. 
They are going to need all the financial help they can get because you know the education lobby out there will have deep pockets because they're invested in failing schools. Why? Because the more they fail, the more likely government will want to spend even more money on schools to fix things. Private companies working in a free market system do not keep throwing money into a failed product line, but government does because it's not their money. It's someone else's. And someone else's money is always easy to risk and to waste. Now, we are going to have Donna back on probably in early May. If you have concerns or questions about real school choice that you'd like answered, send us those so she can address your concerns. Because if you have them, maybe somebody else does as well. All of our contact information is right there on iSpyRadio.com. And now to talk about what is happening in the legislature, I'd like to welcome back Senator Dennis Lidcombe. He represents Senate District 28 out of Southern Oregon which stretches from the California border through Klamath Falls area and all the way up to Central Oregon to the outskirts of Bend. Dennis, it is great to talk to you again. You bet. It's always fun. Today's a snowy day, and um, so it's good to have this conversation. And tomorrow, while people are digging out, they can listen to this radio <laughs> broadcast. Yeah, I don't think it's going to last very long here in, in the Valley for sure. So we, we wanted to check in with you about what's happening in the legislature on a monthly basis. And, and last time, you didn't know yet how the Democrats would be dealing with their reduced power. Uh, so do you have a sense now of the Democrats' willingness to work with Republicans? Yeah, I, I think willingness to work with Republicans is a little bit of a misstatement. Um, they have an agenda, and they're, they've got a full-throated agenda, and mm. they're, they continue to utilize every trick in the book to essentially fool uh, the public at large that they've got things that they're accomplishing and things that they're doing. But when you're disconnected from the working class, when you no longer represent the working class and you only represent the elites as the current Democrats majority represents, those big guys want more legal monopoly power, yes. legalized monopoly power, or more uh, more freedom to implement whatever regulatory mandate they think would be appropriate for their industry. So it's it's using government to capture the marketplace instead of using uh, your own wit and wisdom to find people who believe in your product. Yeah, or, or make a product that's so good that it attracts people rather than needing regulators to push them into your doors instead. So, well, you had mentioned uh, last time that you had some water bills that were scheduled for a hearing, but you weren't sure if that was genuine or not. Was it? Did it turn out to be pretending, or are they finally getting serious about thinking through and solving some of those water problems that you guys consistently have over there? Yeah, right. Right now, it appears there. Uh, it was all just pretend, um, pretense, and. They allowed Republicans to speak to these issues and they gave us a little pat on the head and gave us a lollipop like we're at the barber's <laughs> office for the first time and then kicked us out. So I don't think any of that was sincere. Um, and I'll, I'll admit, quite frankly, that my couple of pieces of legislation had problems. They had things that we should should address as a deliberative body. But if there is no deliberation, if there's no body politic that's willing to work together to cross the aisle, to engage all the Western uh, you know, areas that have more water than they need, and it flows out to the Pacific and nobody seems to mind. Or, to or benefit from it. 
Yeah, that, well, there's tons of beneficial use. There's tons of agriculture and commodity products. There's tons of animal husbandry that's happening on that side. We would simply like um, some resources dedicated to the fragile drought-prone areas that are on the desert side of the Cascades. And so um, it, it's a serious issue. My, my contention during those meetings was, look, at if we don't have snowpack in the current weather uh, environment that we used to have a decade ago, two decades ago, or whatever, um, then we ought to be storing water. God stored it in snowpack. We, therefore, ought to be snowing it in reservoirs. We mm -hmm. ought to allow people to construct a, a thousand different dams and reservoirs using Yankee ingenuity of the farmer's and entrepreneurs uh, on the ground and let them store water. Which, which farmers the, have done for thousands of years. That's exactly right. Bingo. But now we've got a government mindset that says only government can provide these things. Mm -hmm. And you see that bleed off into no more diesel engines by 2035. No more diesel. Oh, wait, and you're going to blow up my gas stove too? And and these guys just get this mindset, and they don't let go, and they beat it through the um, through the media to the point where it's it's quite a difficult battle. So I love the fact that you had Donna on before me because education and education choice is the only way out of it. Yes, the uh, an informed public um, is the only. What, what should I call it? The, an informed public is the only phalanx that we have against the collectivist mind and the objective of socialists, which is essentially government-run um, industry. And, and from the elites, by the way, there's only a handful of them. There's 40,000 of them, but there's 4 million people in Oregon. So the odds aren't good that you're one of the guys pushing a ballpoint pen on a piece of paper. Yeah. And, and, and as uh, you so started we need the, education. Yeah, absolutely we do. And as you started this segment, uh, you talked about how these big guys are getting bigger by using government to do so. So, okay, uh, let's go and take a break there. Lots more to cover with Dennis Lithcomb. He's uh, the senator from District 28 in Southern Oregon. Coming up, we'll be talking about the burning fire of desire, state budgets. Back. This is the Ice Five Radio Show. We're talking today to Senator Dennis Litcomb, who is joining us by phone. He is uh, back home in the Klamath area for a quick break from the legislative session. And uh, Dennis, um, before we get into the state budgets, are, are there any truly dangerous bills out there that have floated to the surface so far? Yeah, there there are a number of them that are really interesting. One that got pulled, and and see. The problem with your question is the question on, you know, a flat level and plumb surface, we could answer that, but there's nothing flat level or plumb about the marbled halls in Salem. Everything gets slanted and every marble that's rolling around within that cascading hierarchy can all of a sudden gain momentum or be gut and stuffed, which is a phrase we use to say it looks like an innocent bill up front. And then the Democrats who run the committees 
take that bill, even let's pretend even that conservatives like myself have their name on that bill as chief sponsors for bill one, two, three, four, five, and they can take bill one, two, three, four, five and stuff it with any number of things. And then the legislature will pass it and it will look like Linthicum sponsored one, two, three, four, five, but that was a complete gut and stuff. It's a monster. It's a Frankensteinian alteration to my original concept. Right. And, and um, you know, just to elaborate a little bit on that, because I think that's a concept a lot of people don't understand about the legislature. Basically, what they do is, is, is a bill goes through the hearing process, gets approved and starts to move forward. And it's got the various headers on there, the titles and everything else. And as you said, the sponsors on there. But then they strip out the entire language and stuff it with an, a, an entirely different bill. Does that sum that up correctly? That's, that's a perfect summation. And, um, and, and what's interesting about this is um, this is really, you know, the only way that they can accomplish this. If they can keep the public in the dark, if they can kind of keep the public poorly informed and, you know, keep them uneducated about the deviant um, goals that they have on the mat, then uh, then it's easy enough to convince them that they've got something that's really important. And, and, and just, to, just to be clear, too, when that's uh, stuffed with, with a, a new bill entirely, essentially what they're doing is they're bypassing the, the normal legislative process and, and they're putting forward a, a bill that has been stuffed now uh, with uh, an entirely new subject and everything else. So essentially, that has never had a hearing. Is, is that correct? That's, that's correct. The, the language, the bill had a hearing when it was just, quote, a placeholder. And then, uh, and it has to be, there's a, there's a item on there called a relating to clause. So it's relating to firearms. And my, my proposal says relating to firearms, we demand constitutional carry access to firearms in the state of Oregon, or we make a law such that anybody over 18 has a right to constitutionally carry a firearm. And that would be my bill. And then they could take it, trim all of my language out, insert their language that says nobody in the state of Oregon will be allowed to own a firearm Mm. And then get it passed, and it's Linthicum's bill, Linthicum's bill, one, two, three, four, five, Linthicum, you know, relating to firearms, Linthicum, you know, and all of a sudden there's this material stuffed inside this um, bill and, that and, has and nothing do not to have do the, with my... Do you not have the ability to remove your name from that once it's been gut and stuffed? Um, you don't have your ability to remove your name on the printed copy, but you can remove your name. Uh, and this is purposeful, too. This is the what do you call it? The disingenuous motive behind getting uh, getting the electronic version. I could remove my name from the electronic version, but the public never sees the electronic version. They only see the printed copies wow. that get published by the president's office. The president's office is a Democrat-controlled, majority-controlled office, and they control the information flow both in and out of the legislative body. And so it's it's very disingenuous, and it's uh, you know kind of one of those things that you have to be really careful. That's why I 
try to stay away from as many bills as possible because there's no telling who's going to hijack right, that right. at some day in the future. So um, we were going to talk about budget. I guess we'll talk about that in the next segment because um, these dangerous bills and whatnot, in the past, Republicans have walked out to deny a quorum to the supermajority Democrats who needed Republicans in the building before Democrats could then deny them a say in anything. Uh, now, thanks to the 2022 ballot initiative, uneducated voters took that off the table, uh, thus ensuring that the majority can trot all over minority views. I mean, just imagine if Portland had denied blacks the rights to protest against things whites were doing to them and then fine them if they did protest. So what tools, if any, do Republican legislators have in the House or Senate to stop these bad bills? Well, we actually, this is, we rely on the public. Earlier, we were having a conversation about why it's so important to have a public who understand they've got a patriotic opposition to collectivism and socialism, and they want to maintain their, you know, what they believe is an appropriate form of governance where they, quote, get a say in, in governance. And we, we have long called this self-governance, but quite frankly, people are far from being self-governing because the government is involved in every aspect of your life. And so to accomplish this, we need, um, for us to accomplish pushback, we need public support. If the public really does think that this budget is unwieldy and this budget spends way too much money for uh, very little end result, for example, with homelessness. You know, $136 million for homelessness and, and housing. And the claim is it will remove 1,200 people from the streets of Portland. But 1,200 people is just a drop in the bucket. And that hole, that donut hole of 1,200 people will get filled with 4,000 coming down from Seattle because they see there's money to be made by mm. moving into Portland. Wow. And so um, it's, a, it's a policy issue that is of great consequence. Everybody cares about the policy issue but Kotex budget does not care about maintaining fiscal integrity or being wise and, and frugal with our public resources. Yeah. They're just willing to throw money around the room and say, there, problem solved. Look how much we spent on homelessness. Exactly right. Yeah, it's, it's how much money we spend, not how many people we actually help. So, okay, let's go and take a break there. Coming back, we will talk about the budgets. Everyone stay with us. We'll have more with Senator Dennis Lithicum out of District 28. Back in our final segment now on the Ice White Radio Show, we're talking with Senator Dennis Lithicum from Senate District 28, which is mainly down in the Klamath Falls area, but it runs all the way from the California border up to the outside uh, outskirts of Bend in Central Oregon. And uh, so, Dennis, I'd like to talk to you about the budget there. You're kind of leading into that in that last segment there. Is, is there any sense of any trimming of any budgets there in, in the state? Yeah, I, I don't think so. Kotex uh, proposal says uh, we've got $32.5 billion, that's $32,000 million in revenue, and we're going to spend $32.1. So, you know, this is only 0.4 that's going to be set aside, you know, part of its rainy day fund, et cetera. 
But for $32 billion coming into the state coffers for a population, every man, woman, and child, somewhere around 4.25, 4.3, and we're going to get $32 billion and um, going to spend every dime of it. And so this is not responsible fiscal policy. This is just find something to do with it. And and Tina Kotek, our new governor, says she's not going to raise taxes, but she popped 50 cents per bottle coming out of the OLCC monopoly that is run by uh, Democrat runs. And now there's scandal regarding OLCC and uh, expensive bottles, $2,000 a bottle. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't even Mm -hmm. know what it was called. You may know the name of of it. Some kind of bourbon, I think. Yeah, it was some kind of pappy somebody's bourbon. I don't even know what it is. But and I'm not complaining. I didn't want a bottle of it. But anyway, you know, buying votes essentially. Right. And then she's also got forty cents per telephone line to fund suicide helpline. And you know, I don't know how many people are suffering from uh, mental health and suicidal ideation, or how many. Thousands of people are hooked on marijuana, even though it's supposed to not be a narcotic that causes addictive behavior. But we're the ones who uncorked that Pandora's box. And now that these, you know, ghouls are floating through society, all of a sudden we're going to tax all the people who avoided getting involved in that ghastly affair to prevent these people from going down the drains. And so I think this this tax sounds as large-hearted as one could get. I want to help those people who are suffering. But in truth, when when you do 40 cents on every telephone, you're talking an enormous amount of money. And I'm wondering exactly how does that get spent? How many lives do we change with that? Do right, we find right. them work? Do we find them housing? Do we get them off the street? Or do we just counsel them and say, keep at it, you're doing a good job, stick with it, you'll be okay. Yeah, here, I mean, here's a smiley a thousand... sticker to help you get through the rough times. Um, it, it's, it's insane how much they're spending, and it just doesn't seem like there's ever any end to this. And this discussion, I think, ties right back into our previous guest, talking about school choice. You've got a situation uh, recently where it was revealed that Baltimore schools spend about $32,000 per child but not a single student in their high schools, and thir- uh, I think it was 23 uh, high schools there, showed grade level competency in math. And Chicago was even worse, spending about $50,000 per child. So, yeah, and, and Chicago's numbers was astounding. Yeah. Th- out of 58 different schools, not a single child was reading on par with their grade level. Right. Well, and in early February, it was being reported that education is 40% of the proposed budget. Uh, the governor actually wants, uh, she wants an overall increase in school spending of $600 million, but the Department of Education says that increase is not enough and they want a whopping $2 billion more just for the K-12 through ports. I mean, this is just insane. We just keep throwing money at these problems without any expectation that anything actually improves. Right, right. Did you, and is there it, anything at all in, in these proposed budgets that would hold anybody accountable say hey we need to see an increase in these test scores or you're not getting any more money yeah uh, i i don't think so and this is why i i keep pleading for help from the public at large 
We need people who are well-educated or well-informed, maybe not well-educated in the university degree concept, but well-educated in terms of wisdom. They've lived life. They know right from wrong. They understand the truth of the world that we live in and inhabit. And then they've got this high moral character that is capable of self-governance. If we're missing either of those legs, um, if, we, if we have people who don't understand the value of freedom or justice or education, and they think an education is just a high-paying job screwing uh, solar panels onto metal arrays out in the middle of the desert, this is, this is not high-tech green job uh, engineering quality stuff. Uh, I guess that if they keep their skills long enough, they'll have the same drill driver in their back pocket and they can go dismantle all of those fields when those panels need to get recycled. The trouble is we don't have any technicians who are capable of recycling millions and millions and millions of solar panels that will be littering the landscape. Yeah. And it will be economic blight for us to continue on this insanity of, quote, green, or they don't call it green, they call it clean energy. And the only reason it's clean is because the coal-fired power plants are off in Wyoming instead of in Eugene or Portland. Hmm. Uh, just real quick, you had mentioned a super bad bill last year that would have given, or last time we talked, uh, that would have given incarcerated felons the right to vote. What happened to that? Uh, yeah, that that hasn't been brought for a work session yet. We hear that there's they're trying to figure out how to uh, make it sound better or more appealing, mm. and um, we'll see what happens with that. But there's well, this. Uh, there's, there's probably plenty. A, there's probably plenty of other insane bills that they have to try to squeeze in ahead of that one. Uh, there's only <laughs> yeah. so much time that you can do, and unfortunately, we're also up against the time here as well. Dennis, I want to thank you so much for your time, and we will talk to you next month as well. Yeah, I look forward to it. I've got all kinds of examples that we could discuss in depth, different bills and subjects and topics and whatnot. So it'll be fun to get back together. Yes, it sure will. So. One thing Dennis told us off air that we'll have to have him back on to discuss more is there's a little problem with the kicker refund that they're not telling you about. You probably already know that the Democrats are trying to block the kicker refund and instead are trying to lock up those funds in new spending so they don't have to give you your own money back. Remember, the kicker refund happens because they overcollected taxes. It's like getting overcharged at a restaurant. It's your money. Of course you deserve it. But the Oregon House of Pork restaurant wants to keep it. And it's not small change. On average, working families could get up to $5,200 back. But here's the problem. They don't have those kicker funds in their bank account. They already spent it. And so to release that average $5,200 per family, they would have to borrow back the money they weren't supposed to spend. And then they'd have to pay high interest rates. Can you believe this? This is just one of many reasons why we need the next generation to be better educated than the results we're getting now. Real school choice is the way out, the only way out. Spending 40% of your budget and increasing it every year on the same problem, expecting different results, is the definition of insanity. Get those petition signature sheets at educationfreedomfororegon.com, educationfreedomfororegon.com, volunteer, or at a minimum, help them out with a donation. Because as we say every week, the best information does you no good if you don't use it. Reagan? 
What do you think? I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.